This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. As we head into the new year, 2019 is both a strong reminder of all the resets and resolutions that we can offer for ourselves, our families, our communities, and the world. But it's also easy to enter that new year with a fair amount of cynicism. Taking a look at divisions at home or conflicts abroad, it's easy to still recognize that as Americans and as a country, we still have a challenge in terms of the equitable treatment of women in the workplace. We still have a challenge of how we respect Supreme Court nominees when allegations of assault have been hurled across the board. We still have challenges about water security, water cleanliness, and food security, not just around the globe, but even within our own homes from Flint, Michigan to Los Angeles. We have challenges about climate change, and we have challenges of civil strife and war racing their way around the world. So, In this era of a new year and a new hope, how do we create this overall sense of optimism? And despite what lens of cynicism or doubt or challenges or conflict we might look through, there is one unifying mode of motivation and optimism, and that is the power of storytelling. Much of America's identity, its values, its very ethos of what it stands for abroad hasn't been codified into commodities or goods that can be sold. It's actually been bottled into a culture of who we are and what we stand for. That sense of unity, that sense of free expression, and that sense of inclusivity is core to our DNA, and it can only be advanced if more and more people decide to buck this notion of a cynical 2019 and start to focus more on how culture, discussion, and discourse can motivate even more of that inclusivity that has defined who we are as a people from time and time and memorial and generation to generation. Often on this podcast, we discuss the policies, politics, and debates that are informing or shaping the divisions in America. But core to who we are as a people is reflecting on how we actually build a strong American culture, questioning how that identity is informed and how we continue to tell that story abroad. One of the biggest catalysts for being able to tell that story and create that connective tissue of empathy continues to be the greatest art form that America continues to export, and that is the power of televised, broadcasted, digital, or even studio-produced storytelling. Joining us today on the podcast is the co-founder of Wayfarer Entertainment, Farhud Mehbudi. He's a writer, director, and executive producer that has focused on disruptively inspirational storytelling, specifically with an eye towards stitching together unity and inclusivity in the American culture and DNA. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Farhood started his career earlier on in law and actually even worked at a fashion house, but through that meandering has been able to leverage a non-traditional background that has given Farhood a marketer's mindset, something that he draws upon frequently when helping not just brands, but television networks, nonprofit studios, and non-governmental organizations to help leverage the magic of storytelling to connect with audiences in an incredible way. From his work on 
the award-winning documentary series My Last Days focused on the courageous lives of those with terminal illnesses to his work on Chefs Without Borders, another documentary series featuring celebrity chefs focusing on how indigenous tribes use their unique approach in other countries to tackle food insecurity, and even to his most recently celebrated work on Man Enough, a dinner conversation series fe- featuring a number of, of household names that focus on how male masculinity in America is informing gender disparity in America. All of that showcases one commonality of truth, which is despite how cynical or dubious you may feel about the challenges in this world, if we can galvanize people to action and motivate them, the power of storytelling can be a crucial ingredient in that pursuit. Joining us today, Farhud Maybuddy. How you doing, buddy? Thanks for joining American Enough. What an introduction. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. It's <laughs> such a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're honored to have you. I, I think... You know, but but before we sort of dive into the specifics of, of the work that that you have been focused on and and the issues that you're trying to draw attention to, um, I think it's it's interesting for anyone to know that there may be entire um, studio outfits, whether you want to focus on on marketing for brands or developing original content for television or for the web, that have an operating thesis or philosophy like Wayfarer does. Um, Can you tell Mm. us a little bit about how Wayfarer sees itself in terms of its mandate and mission? Because I think many might, you know, could see it as, okay, so you're a studio, you're an entertainment outfit. What kind of work are you doing that's a little bit different? And and why are you guys motivated to do it in that way? Fantastic question. Yeah, I think, you know, when you zoom out and you look at Hollywood, um, you know, since its inception, I think the focus has primarily been on money and entertainment. You know, how can we capitalize on this art form? Um, how can we generate revenue from this art form? Um, and I think what we set out to do as a company is to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with money. Money's great. But if that's all you're doing, if that's all you're using this incredible, fantastic medium for, well, then you're missing out on something. You know, I think from my perspective, if you go all the way back, to, you know, people huddled around a fire in caves, right? Storytelling hasn't just been about entertaining people. It's been about um, um, relaying truths, relaying information, right? And I think when you can relay uh, socially impactful content and entertain, that's a very, very powerful step for our industry. And I think over the past, you know, roughly five years, there have been some massive steps forward. You know, when we first started the company, we'd go into rooms and people would say, who cares about social impact? Like, who, ca- who, who, who would ever watch that? Nobody would watch that show, you know? And I think as you've seen the transformations over the past couple of years, you know, you look at, you know, what are the commercials around the Academy Awards or what are the commercials around the Super Bowl? They changed. You know, what are the videos going viral? Well, there are videos and commercials that are celebrating this human experience, right? Both the light and the shadow. That's what people are sharing. So what we have always believed is that when you can create pathways um, with the viewer that are focused on empathy, focused on connection, focused on sincerity, um, that that's the best way. That's a very unique way of engaging them in a conversation. And I think... What's very special about what Wayfair does 
is that Wayfair works with brands and networks and studios to help them connect with viewers. And, you know, when you look at millennials and Gen Z and Gen X, well, what's, you know, what are the trends? They're not watching television. And if they're not watching television, they're not, then they're not watching commercials. And if the entire purpose of television is to get people to watch commercials, well, then the ad industry has a big problem. You know, so what we are setting out to do is to focus on branded content that is innovative, that is sincere, that focuses on the power of human connection to help brands expand their market share and to also help the American public come together at the same time. That, that that's fascinating, and I and I specifically think it is interesting that, that a we think of um, from a transactional perspective the, the medium of television or even you know a YouTube digital short to be a means to draw the user in, but then immediately share an ad with them and right and that that's sort yeah. of defined <laughs> certainly hollywood with having upfronts year over year right you have all yeah. these these networks come out and and share what pilots they have and then advertisers are able to you know kind of lick their chops as to what seems um unique for the audience they're trying to market to um but that evolution um seems to both be motivated by the new way that consumers consume that content right so mobile everything digital everything but there's something that you said in the beginning that I that I want to double click on and that is this notion that social impact branded content or purpose driven um content was never really core to the model or if it was it was sort of seen as kind of art housey or independent or it wasn't going to create like a, a blockbuster bang in a studio depiction can you walk us through what is sort of sort of motivating that and the reason i ask i know there's no one thing but i think if you look at the the past recent Golden Globes, Oscars, Emmys, not that they're the only proxy for, for how entertainment is, is judged or measured, but if you take a look at speeches that were delivered there and um, uh, movies or television shows or documentaries, um, even artists and, and cinematographers, many of them in both of who was awarded, what was awarded, and what was said on those stages tend to have a bit more of, I don't want to say a political bend, but a bend to what they're trying to celebrate with their artwork that has a, a motivation for purpose, right? A motivation for yeah. whether it's unity, whether it's tackling race, whether it's tackling a certain issue. And that seems to be running parallel to what you just said in terms of this evolution of how content is branded. Is that a coincidental mm. convergence or is that something that studios like yours are trying to catalyze with a specific practical purpose? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I think, you know, when we look back, and I can look back to my childhood, you know, like when I would watch television or when I would see commercials and, you know, there's Sally Struthers and there's these, you know, indigenous children with the flies circling around their head. Like, there was this level of manipulation to socially impactful content. And there was this level of like just, uh, it just felt forced. It didn't feel sincere. It felt like, you know, uh, um, this was all made up, you know, and I think it's not a coincidence that viewers, to a certain extent, uh, weren't very interested in it, right? Um, the, the trends over the past couple of years are, you know, when you look at millennials and Gen Z, they make their purchasing decisions based on social impact. So unlike their parents who were, you know, sitting down, watching TV, not changing a channel for commercials, right? These individuals understand the very nature of advertising. They're much smarter than their parents, right? They know who Don Draper was. 
They understand his handbook, right? They get it, right? And to a certain extent, this is a saving grace to our, to our industry because they're very wise, they get it, and they speak with their dollars. So we're in a place now where the advertising industry is dealing with a little bit of chaos, right? If people aren't watching television, then they're not watching commercials. So how do you get the attention of these individuals? Well, if they want socially impactful content that is authentic, is sincere, you know, is not manipulative at all, well, then that's a great way of getting their attention, right? So if we can create content that isn't interrupted in nature, it isn't, you know, forcing product placement all, you know, everywhere. If we can create content that is sponsored by brands, kind of like a podcast, right? No one ever balks, you know, for the first five seconds of a podcast when someone says brought to you by whoever. If we can create sponsored content that is authentic in nature, that shares a story that is rooted in truth, right? Then I think we can not only um, entertain, but we can also create a new relationship between brands and viewers that is much more sustainable and much more scalable uh, from a from a from a financial standpoint. So I think, you know, where we are as a company is, you know, when we started Wayfair, there weren't many companies out there that were sharing the same message. Um, I think Participant Media, uh, lots of successes. I think Soul Pancake. Uh, they're one of our partners in the space. We we, oh, we uh, work right. on my last days together, and you know, Soul Pancake and Participant uh, essentially, uh, um, you know, Participant bought Soul Pancake, and that was a huge case study for our industry because it said like, wow, here's this company, Soul Pancake, completely focused on, you know, content that brings people together, right? And now this gigantic behemoth Participant, um, they see value in that, right? So what Wayfair believes is that this is not um, an accident. This is not a coincidence. We are, we are going to see more and more of this because the American public, with all of the noise and all of the you know, divisions in the country and, and all the fear, you know, when people turn on you know, CNN or Fox News, they know what they're going to get. You, you, you know what you're going to get when you watch you know, mainstream media. They want to feel good. And I feel like when you look at the Hallmark Channel, and you see the, the massive case study that is Hallmark over the past couple of years, well, it's not a coincidence. People watch the Hallmark Channel because they want the antithesis to what they're receiving on mainstream media. And I think Wayfair is very much recognizing all of these trends and contributing in our, um, in our own way to advancing this space. It's funny that you should say that because the number one thing that my dad watches outside of MSNBC or cable network news is actually the Hallmark Channel. I'm sure there's there's a very there's a lot strong of people like your dad. There's a lot of yeah. people like your dad it, in America. It's it's it, one thing that you mentioned specifically is the noise, right? That that um, organizations like yours are trying to cut through with messages and content of of unity, hope inclusivity and optimism, kind of doubling down on, on the culture of who we are piece that we that we mentioned at the top. I'm, I'm curious, though, of the body of work that um, y that you've 
already been applauded for publicly, and I'm sure there's a lot in the can that is, you know, in pre-production or development right now. Um, you've used, you know, countless numbers of shows, PSAs, digital shorts, branded content that focus on quite quite a, a, a varied array of topics, right? So terminal illness, for example, redefining manhood, um, how food insecurity is looked at um, with an eye towards creating a greater understanding here at home in the U.S., but using the backdrop of how different cultures abroad um, approach those issues. Those are very um, needy and insightful issues that can have a lot of depth, but they motivate, uh, you know, if you take a look at uh, of any of your work, um, specifically Man Enough, it motivates a sense of, of action, um, almost like a call to action of, of trying to, at a minimum, think about the issue more, but also maybe beyond just thinking about it, um, maybe talk to their friends about it. Maybe it's at the dinner table. Maybe it's community organized around it. And when you mentioned that there is a lot of noise out there because of this 24-7 media age, that also means there are, there's a lot of noise out there of issues that could motivate Wayfair to, to tackle. Um, is is there an approach that you all take, either in terms of um, the organizations, the actors, the, the the brands you work with, that vectors you to wanting to focus on a, a short list of items, um, or is it just fair to say that this is what's getting you started and, and sky's the limit in terms of what you may address as a company? Yeah, well, you know, first things first, we will only work with branded partners who represent the values that we as a company believe. So we've never worked with an alcohol brand, a tobacco brand. Um, we don't do any political spots, nothing of that nature. We are, we, are, we are focused on content for everybody, and we want to make sure that the places that our money comes from, that there's purity behind it. So um, you know, looking at the content itself, we look into our own lives and see what we're going through as creatives, um, I think, you know, when you look at a show like My Last Days, um, you know, it started out on YouTube. It's now a CW series. Um, you know, my business partner, Justin, created that show um, after watching one of his family members going through illness and death. And he saw the impact that it had on himself, that it had on his family. And he saw that in the national conversation, there wasn't anything like My Last Days that was showing you know, the light and the shadow of death in a way that was engaging people sincerely. You know, there have been, you know, plenty of shows that have exploited death or, you know, manipulated people's feelings around death. But what he wanted to do was say, wow, what if we can create a documentary series where every episode profiles a person navigating life with an illness but there's beauty in that illness, right? There's beauty in that experience. They're thriving, you know? Yeah, maybe they have terminal fibrosis, but they want to be an international public speaker, or maybe they had cancer and they've done, you know, 100 Ironmans, or maybe they have ALS, but they're a renowned photographer, right? So what we believe is that if we can make mortality our ally, well, then you can unravel this whole life experience. And that's, that's what My Last Days was all about. Um, and Man Enough, you know, falls along those same lines because I believe that, you know, Justin, Ahmed, and myself as business partners, um, we've had our own uh, evolution regarding our own masculinity. You know, we would have our own conversations um, as partners 
about vulnerability and communication and all of these things that, you know, we as men in America are navigating, we have those conversations first. And then we look and we say, wow, there's no one really doing this right now. There's no show. <laughs> there's no program that gives men a space to, 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 to share and to open up. And I think what's funny about Man Enough is for four years, we took that show into every room in Hollywood. Every room that I went into, I pitched this show. And I got the same response in all the rooms. The old white guy in the room was like, who's going to watch this show? Who's going to watch a bunch of men talking? That doesn't make any sense. And, and, and it's funny because my first thought was always, sir, who do you talk to? Do you have anyone that you share with? You know? And, uh, you know, Man Enough has been a very um, unique experience because we self-financed. Um, you know, we, we cast the show internally. We went out and got a brand uh, on board to help underwrite the costs. And, you know, Midway through the process, Harvey Weinstein happened and Matt Lauer happened and, you know, the Me Too movement just exploded. And we said all of a sudden at that point, people were interested in having this conversation. <laughs> um, you know, the conversation that we had been trying to have for a couple of years. So, so I think for us as creatives, um, the first step is always being true to ourselves. And looking into ourselves and saying, you know, what are the elements of my life that I think, um, you know, are worthy of being being expanded in some way, um, somatically into a project? And then through the creative process, as a director or as a writer or as a producer, bringing that authenticity into the creative experience. Because I think that's when the real magic happens is when you kind of like reveal yourself when you're creating something like this. And that authentic moment um, is is interesting because, in many respects, you you your team were, were bringing that sense of, of genuine earnest when you were shopping man enough around town in Hollywood and, and getting those reactions that you were getting of who's going to watch this, and yet it converged with the authenticity of the times um, of you know various individuals coming forward. Um, and and with both audacity and bravery and courage to to call out those in a position of power or public trust um, created this incredible movement and moment. Um, and and then all of a sudden, I, I'm sure the amount of attention and understanding that your body of work, your creative work, was getting um, sort of tightly or conveniently aligned. Um, do you think that the? I, I want to ask if if maybe the word convenience is unfair, but do you think that? Um, based off of the experiences um, of the work that you've put out, but specifically with the example of Man Enough, that studios and, and those that have obviously a fiduciary responsibility to create and produce and distribute content that makes money back, but do you think that they're increasingly understanding that there's an appetite for this, or will it take sort of the, the bravery and audacity of a few, uh, a few of you like Wayfair uh, or maybe others to stick their neck out and try and lead and steer the direction of this type of content, actually not only being worthwhile, but actually authentic based off of how consumers are actually expected to view and, and digest content that actually speaks about purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the studios and the networks see the power of this content. 100%. You know, we operate within the traditional system of Hollywood. Uh, we, we do create digital series, right? 
But if you look at My Last Days, you know, My Last Days started out on YouTube. It was a soul pancake series. We had zero marketing budget whatsoever and got some 30, 40 million views on season one. We crashed Upworthy server. It was, it was a global viral <laughs> sensation. And then we took the intellectual property to the CW network. And the CW network said, like, wow, we would love to have this on the air. You know, they gave us a shot. And now we're in season four. You know, so if, you know, if the studio didn't see value in this, then why would they have done that? You know, so they, they, they understand um, they understand how powerful this content is. And I think when you look at something like My Last Days and you see that, you know, to date we have some 60 million views um, between YouTube and Facebook with no marketing. And, you know, this is at a time when, you know, traditionally uh, digital content, th there are these rules of like, it has to be 30 seconds or it has to be one minute. Well, My Last Days episodes are 20 minutes to 40 minutes, right? Uh, and we're, yes. Yeah, so imagine we are, we are creating content focused on, you know, uh, terminal illness, uh, that people are watching on a mass, mass scale. Um, and we're doing it at a time when people aren't necessarily watching television. So, you know, the studios, the networks, they get it. You know, we're doing a film with CBS, uh, right now called five feet apart that comes out in March. And it's all about, two young people who have cystic fibrosis, they're in a hospital, but because it's a bacterial disease, they can't be less than six feet to one another. So it's like this love story where the two uh, main characters can't touch each other, right? Um, that's a studio film, right? So, 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 so I think we're seeing all of these shifts and by and large, you know, the agency model, the studio model, the, you know, the networks, they see value in it as well. And I think we're only going to see this amplify over the next decade. And, and let's, let's go back to the actual, the, the, what, what I find to be one of the more fascinating components to this is, you know, there, there's certainly the, 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 is this content going to be viewed based off of, you know, the evolution of mediums of how you or I might consume most of our content? There's the, is this content going to be produced based off of the traditional powers that be in the entertainment world? But there's also what I think is kind of one of the larger tents in the poll is this notion that the the private sector, for lack of a better term, can be a really meaningful actor in, in spurring this sense of who we are as a people or galvanizing hope and unity. You know, typically, um, if we're talking about the treatment of uh, of men and women, uh, we it's very easy for this country to talk about the, a gender pay gap or laws on the books that aren't totally fair for um, all versus just the sum. Um, or it's easy to talk about how we manage criminal justice if there's, you know, Me Too or assault allegations. Um, but those are political and policy and legal and regulatory conversations. Um, and yet you all are able to occupy a space that provokes all of those topics without necessarily using the, the power of you know a politician, without necessarily having to create a debate between Republicans or Democrats, but rather using the art of storytelling. Um, can you walk us through why you feel that is an effective medium and, and how art can continue to shed a light on some of the most vexing challenges that we all too often assume only our government or politicians are yeah. fit to address? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, I believe that if you look at America and where we are currently, um, 
the current state of our country is a direct reflection of the art that has been disseminated over the past 50 years, let's say. You know, um, I'll use myself as a case study. You know, when I was growing up, you know, I was watching TV shows and films and listening to music that quite frequently, you know, glamorized violence, um, objectified women, um, treated women as sexual objects. Uh, this was my frame. This was my frame of reality. And I think when you look at like, you know, LGBTQ, you know, you know, individuals, they were, uh, uh, you know, I was taught to ostracize them. You know, they were never represented. You know, I didn't see these individuals in my, you know, daily TV viewing. And when I did, um, they weren't shown in a human way. Right. So, so I think when we kind of look at where we are as a country and we see all this, fear and anxiety and you know divisiveness we need to recognize that to a certain extent um we are a reflection of the signals that are beamed um you know coast to coast by media and what's unique about now um and i'll use the um you know you know equality of marriage um, um act is you know in 1996 uh when the defense of marriage act was signed there were minimal LGBTQ characters on television, minimal, right? And then when you zoom and you look at 2013, right, there were some hundred LGBTQ characters on TV. And they weren't just flat characters. These are multi-layered, multi-dimensional humans. You could see, you felt for them. You empathized with them. You understood, right? That was a game changer. That was a game changer. I very much in my heart believe that, you know, our progress in regards to equality was a direct result of television. And now you look and you see, uh, you know, last year we had some 300 LGBT, um, LGBTQ characters on television. Right? It's a big deal. So the art that we take in, the shows that we watch, the films that we see, they create a psychological frame for our lives, which we will then take into the ballot box, which we will then go and take into our conversations. And I very much believe that for me, I would prefer to focus on unity and empathy and understanding than focus on the lower nature, you know, violence, uh, sexual object, um, objectification, all of these things. I would rather focus on uh, values that can help us and that can really represent the version of America I want to see for my children than this current sort of confused, fragmented state. That that doesn't work for anybody. That's a really good point, especially that last one about the the images that we see, the memories we have, and you know the stories that resonate with us are cumulatively express whether we're talking to a friend or voting for an elected official, right? And so bringing that to the dinner table or our ballot box actually has very significant and material impacts in the way we, we view the world. I, I, I wonder, um, you know, I was going to ask that with each of, of, of Wayfair's productions, um, is there an assumed call to action, if you will? And, and I guess that sounds a little mechanical or transactional, but um, do you try and associate your work uh, with, you know, say it's examining terminal illness or cystic fibrosis or food insecurity? Um, is that something that you see as the, is the end deliverable? Should it be 
taking that memory and having that sense of experience and empathy the next time you, you intersect with a situation or a community affected by that? Um, or do you sometimes try and associate the work with an organization or a cause that can then galvanize the viewer to get engaged? And, and I realize that even posing that question perhaps undercuts the purpose of, of the medium and art form that, that you're producing. And so maybe feel free to Tell me if that's a misguided question, because maybe just having the memory <laughs> no, of I think itself it's is great, important. You know? I, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, in regards to the creative process for us, um, the social impact uh, strategy and campaign is crafted when we craft the creative. So it's all done at the same time, because every one of our projects, we create with a desire for some sort of change, right? Um, and a lot of, you know, other people will tack on the social impact last. And I think that's a very problematic way of doing it, um, you know, because you, the viewer can feel it, right? The viewer can feel when something is forced. And our goal with our content is that there is a seamless integration of real social impact and storytelling. Um, and I think when you look at something like Man Enough, um, it's a great case study for this because, you know, we, we we were very intentional in crafting Man Enough in regards to the sort of call to action. And the call to action was just talk to a man that you respect and a man that you love about these issues or your feelings, right? We understood that somebody wasn't just going to watch this one episode or two episodes or four episodes and all of a sudden change all of their views, around traditional masculinity, gender violence, like we get it, right? But if we can be the catalyst, if we can be the first step, right? If watching Man Enough, if, you know, if watching six influential men bear their souls and have a conversation around, you know, their own masculinity, how they've messed up, you know, what they've learned, if that can give some guy permission to then go and do it in his life with his friends, that's a massive win. That's a massive win. But what we also do is we partner with different nonprofit organizations who have been doing this for years, right? A call to men, a child safety pledge, representation project, he for she, right? We will partner with, with, um, with these organizations and then we will weave their, uh, their um, messaging points into the narrative and then we'll also create at the end of the piece like a link that says hey you know if you want to learn more about you know sexual assault or rape or you know something to that you know um effect click on this link and go and check out rain and learn more right because we understand that you know we don't have all the answers right we're just one step along this person's journey so i think for us as um, as creatives, our goal is to create content that not only entertains people and gets their attention, but also kind of uh, gives them a little bit of education in regards to how they can use um, this framework to benefit their own lives. That's a really good point because it means that, you know, you mentioned, for example, the representation project, the work being done by um, Jennifer Siebel Newsom. And it, it kind of points out that if there's an ecosystem of actors that are both wedding 
art and purpose through the medium of, of uh, you know, consumable entertainment, then that means that you can create not only connective tissue between me, the observer, and the, the purpose-driven content, but also those linkages between other actors out there that are trying to promote that. And then it, it sort of creates not just an echo chamber, but actually kind of a broad universe of action across the board. That, that's pretty, that's an awesome way to think of it. Um, I, I guess I'm, I am curious for for what you've done so far. Um, certainly had a lot of success uh, across various mediums, and and as we introdu- introduced you at the top, you're able to weave together quite an, an interesting background for yourself personally in order to to get these things done and and fuel thinking in this new and creative way. What's surprised you the most, I guess, since joining this effort? Is there something that you you didn't know that the work would involve um, that you now are, are more appreciative of, more cognizant of, that you take with you on future projects that you might have currently mm. underway? That's a great question. I think what surprised me most was the value of my own trauma in life. Um, you know, I think coming in to being a filmmaker, you know, my background was originally in, you know, law and global fashion distribution. And then I made this decision, you know, at 27 of, you know, I want to be a storyteller. I want to use this, this incredible medium to ensure that people come together, that people feel a sense of empathy. And I think for me, what I wasn't expecting was the, the value of my own trauma in fueling the art. And I think, you know, when you look at a show like my last days, um, there's a lot of pain associated with living with a terminal illness. You know, a lot of our cast members and their families are dealing with quite a few emotional issues. Um, It's not just the physical pain and it doesn't stop with the individual navigating the illness. Some of them are caretakers, right? Uh, The episode that I directed for season three uh, followed uh, an incredible young man named Anthony Carbajal. Um, He's a renowned photographer um, who has ALS. And his wife at the time was his caretaker and his mother had ALS and her mother had ALS. And there was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of trauma in that experience. And I think for me as a filmmaker coming into it, um, really recognizing that my humanity, my, my humanity was much more important and much more valuable than my role as a director or my, you know, you know, qualities as a director that, that, that if I could bring these people together, hold space for them and give them space to say whatever they, whatever they need to say and do whatever they need to do to get things out, right. That that was the real magic, you know, and I think at Wayfair, we work with quite a few people that are, you know, either navigating illness or they're survivors of sexual assault. And, you know, there's a lot of intention that needs to go around creating a, a container for these people um, to ensure that number one, they're not exploited. Um, but number two, to ensure that they feel safe and that they can share their story from a place of power. And um, to do that as a filmmaker, I first need to channel my own trauma and to make sure that I'm in touch with myself. And um, I think it's one of the greatest strengths that we have in a comp- you know, as a company is that approach to storytelling where it's, you know, it's less about just getting the shot or, you know, m- you know, you know, manufacturing this look. And it's more just about letting this person's humanity come through, creating the container for them to share. Um, and it's, it's That's really, a hell really of an special. insight, man. 
Yeah, because I <laughs> think you, most man. of us assume, as as consumers of of entertainment or or content you're putting out there, I don't think we have enough day to day appreciation for what goes into priming someone to share. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to assume or to overlook documentary style uh, forms of storytelling where you really do need to do that pre-work versus even even acted out or more fictitious approaches still require each of those individual characterizations to to channel some amount of trauma. Um, it, it is interesting, though, because if that is the root cause of, of what can really create the ripe environment to tell the stories that then go from trauma to hopefully creating unity or empathy, as we've talked about. Um, what is, and, and I know this is sort of like a, a meteor question, but is there any aspect of what you've seen from each of these um each of these like distinct pieces of, of information or intellectual property or, or stories that have informed your broader worldview of who we are as a people here in America. And, and I ask that because, you know, on this podcast, we, you know, we love to examine how if, if Hollywood is evolving or if the way purpose-driven entertainment is being presented is evolving, then that means the identity of storytelling in America is changing. And that, too, informs that cultural depiction of not only what we view at home, but also what we export overseas when, and when they view American content. So just reflecting on that, do you see these evolutions as giving you a different approach of what it means to be an American or rather what American identity means through the lens of talking to those with a terminal illness or through the lens of talking with those tribes abroad who, who, who face food challenges or talking to fellow men about how they perceive women in, in the workplace or day-to-day -day lives. If there's one way to stitch all that together, has that shaped <laughs> your sense of who yeah, you are? Just easy, sure. easy peasy. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, for me, um, and I'll kind of preface by saying my family's from Iran. They're Muslim. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I went to a Catholic school pretty much my whole life. Um, very much grew up in a L.A. bubble. Um, spent my early 20s driving through the American South solo to a lot of rural towns. Oh, um, no way. Yeah, I spent a lot of time. And it's funny, I actually just came back from um, Hot Springs, Arkansas, like like one week ago. And I love the South. I love the American South. And um, there's this narrative that people in the South um, hate uh, Middle Eastern people or Muslim people. I have not personally experienced that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Um, I've just been embraced w with open arms. And I think for me as a filmmaker, um, one of the biggest takeaways that I've had in working on a show like My Last Days is representing and seeing the value of mortality, right? In America, we have been conditioned to fear death, right? Everything we've seen, right? All the images that we've seen, it's like death is the worst thing that can ever happen, right? When your hairs get gray, you dye them. When your skin gets wrinkly, you go see the plastic surgeon, right? We do not wanna age. And I think from my perspective, when you can sit with someone who has made peace with death, you see that it's like the ultimate Jedi mind skill, right? Like this individual who is much closer to the exit than the entrance, right? They're going through pain on the daily, but if they can make peace with their mortality, then what does that mean for all of us? It means that if I can use death and we are all gonna die, 
you and I are both going to die eventually at some point, right? But if I can use that as an ally and bring it into every conversation I have to ensure that I'm showing up, that I'm being authentic, that if my death comes tomorrow, I'm ready. I have no regrets, right? That's a really beautiful thing. And it changed my life. You know, it's hard to spend, you know, a week or two uh, um, creating content with someone who's navigating terminal illness and not have your life change. And it's, it's the most beautiful thing about my job is that we get to go in and become parts of the family with incredible human beings who are going through unimaginable trauma, yet persevering. And I think when you talk about what it means to be an American, you know, I grew up in LA and I spent a lot of time in the South and Midwest. And I think this, this concept of what the American spirit is, and, you know, we live in a very fragmented time, right? What it means to be an American is, is changing and in many parts for good, right? We are evolving, but as human beings, we have to remember that we need to empathize with individuals who are going through trauma and pain. Because even the most loud, uh, 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 judgmental racist at their heart is navigating trauma. Otherwise, they wouldn't be who they are. At the heart of their racism is fear. So, and this is easier for you know, some people that, than others, but what I try to do um, you know, as, a, as an American whose family came from Iran, when I encounter a person like that, um, I try to just have empathy and listen. And what I've found is it's hard to hate someone when they're right in front of your face with a smile, arms outstretched. And I think for me as a storyteller, um, my goal is to create content that helps remind all Americans the value of having empathy for one another. Because at the end of the day, despite our differences, we're all human beings. We're all living this, in this incredible country. We have incredible opportunities. And, you know, there's magic to be experienced. I think if, if, if anyone um, can be, uh, you know, born from uh, or, or have inherited from a, a country that is currently being, you know, scrutinized and, and alleged to be banned as a preferred travel list from from the current administration. Spend time growing up in LA and opt to spend time growing up or spending time in the South, and then still weave together stories that try and create inroads between fellow Americans and and zooming out just fellow humans. Then I do think that there's plenty of hope and optimism in. 2019. Thank uh, you, May Buddy is the co-founder or sorry, co-owner of Wayfarer Entertainment. Thank you so much for joining American Enough, Farhood. It's an honor, brother. Thank you so much for the work you do. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-Vikram and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.